So there are certain moments in time where the normal mundane kind of rhythm of life gets broken. It could be a, a disaster happens, and maybe you know what that's like. Something major uh, kind of rocks the world, and suddenly everything seems different. Um, kind of calendars change. We, we talk about things, don't we, before and after 9-11. If I say uh, one time Melanie and I were flying and we had 12 steak knives in our carry-on, you say, oh, that's pre-9-11, because there's no way they'd let you take steak knives in your carry-on after that. That was a moment in time where everything kind of changed. Maybe for uh, some, certainly for one person in this church, tsunami, 2004, that was a key moment. That was a moment that transformed everything. When disasters strike, uh, those who live through them tend to look back on them as being very significant moments. It might not be something so global. It might be something like a, a diagnosis or a death. In a sense, it doesn't affect others, but for you, it's where the world kind of stops. You know, when you're sat in that room with the doctor and the doctor says, I've got bad news, it's cancer. From that point on, everything's different. Or you get the phone call and you discover that someone you love has suddenly died. Everything changes, and some of you know the the pain of that. And you never get over that. It becomes a part of your life, and somehow you kind of get to a new normal, but everything's different because of that one thing that happened. So whether it's a disaster on a global scale or a diagnosis or a death, any of these kind of negative things tend to create a different sense of what's going on in the world, of what the, the world looks like through your eyes. It could be something positive too, of course. Maybe you think back to the day when you looked across the room and there he was or there she was. And from that point on, everything was different. Or maybe the moment your first child was born, that's a special moment and that changes everything. And, and it seems to me like whether we're thinking negatively or positively, all of us have moments in time where the calendar just kind of gets marked and everything before and everything after is somehow different. Now, it could be that those things are uh, done to us. It could be something that we're involved in. It could be a, a coincidence uh, that things happen on a, such an occasion that such and such led to such and such. It, it, it could be something uh, completely coincidental. But what about if it's something that God does? What about if there's a, a moment in time where God seems to get involved in human history in such a way that those who are affected by it cannot deny that it was God who was working. One of the, the ways that that happens and has happened over time is with something we call a revival. A revival is it, kind of a weird Christian word, isn't it? But revival is, is describing a season where there's a very special sense of God at work amongst his people. You might say, well, who cares? Why, why would I be interested in, in that? Well, even if you're sat here thinking, well, I don't believe in God, I don't believe in Jesus, if you just look at history, you'll find that there are certain moments in time where God seems to be at work, whether you believe in him or not, and the impact on society is huge. Back in the 1730s and 1740s, for example, the first great awakening in, in the U.S., but also well, pre-U.S., U.S., but in America and also here, uh, there was uh, this great awakening, and the impact was massive. We tend to think a hundred years later for the freeing of the slaves, but in the 1730s, 1740s, the impact of God changing lives meant that uh, slaves, African slaves, were started to, starting to be viewed as humans. There was a, a change in the way they were treated. 
It took a while to get the freedom that they should have had, but, but there was a, a shift there. You come to the second Great Awakening in 1800, and then you look in the years after that, through the 1800s. It's no coincidence in my mind that there's this kind of season where the, uh, the, the church seems to be kind of almost electrified, like God is working in a way that's so spectacular. And within those first years of the 1800s, we just have a massive uh, Im- improvement or explosion in health care and in education and in care for the poor. There's a, a rollover impact. When the church is healthier, then society is healthier. And we could keep on going and give instance after instance. But what we're going to do uh, for this series, we've called the series Ignite, and we're going to think about revivals. Specifically, some revivals that take place in the Bible, and we're going to go to a book that has more revivals in it than any other book in the Bible. And the reason we're doing this is not so that we can kind of look at it and say, oh, I wish we could experience that, and then start thinking, right, now, how can I twist God's arm to manipulate and force him to do something special in my day? That's often the way revival kind of language goes in, in the church, to be honest. We kind of hear stories, we get excited, we long for that, and then we start saying, well, if we do this, and if we do this, and if we do this, and and it becomes this kind of, if only we could force God to do something kind of a thing, where it's all about us and our efforts, and God seems cold and distant and disinterested. That's not what we're after at all. What we want to do is look in this book, a book that probably is not too familiar to, to many of us, and see God in action... And in the process, discover, maybe for the first time for some, maybe be reminded for for others, discover that we've got a God who cares, a God who longs to be involved, a a God who wants to stir up his people, who wants to have a, a greater and greater impact amongst us. And it seems to me that if we can be, as a as a church, as a congregation, looking in God's word, having our hearts stirred for what God is like and who he is, then then maybe our responsiveness to him can be can be heightened. Revival, I don't know. That's up to him. But wouldn't it be great for us to have collectively a real sense of being those who respond to God in a way that's pleasing to him? Those who are leaning in to what he is leaning into, who lean forward and and ask him to do what he's already leaning forward and wanting to do. And so we're going to go to the book, like I said, that has the most revivals uh, in it uh, in the whole Bible. It's the book that actually in the Old Testament comes at the very end. And it's not Malachi, that's at the end of our Old Testament. But the Old Testament, the way the Jews had it organized, when you get to the end, you think about all the stories of Genesis and Exodus and so on, you come right to the other end and the final book of the Old Testament looks back and it reviews the whole story. It goes back and it says, okay, it begins with Adam. And it goes through all the history and it focuses in carefully selecting certain stories to try to encourage us and stir us to respond to God in the way that he wants us to. It's the book of Chronicles. Second Chronicles in particular. Chronicles was one long book. It got divided in two. And we're going to jump in and look at Second Chronicles, number two Chronicles. So the, the book of Chronicles begins with Adam and it goes all the way through to the last words let him go up, which interestingly in Hebrew is Aliyah. So from Adam to Aliyah. There you go, the book of Chronicles. All right, and what, what I'd encourage you to do over these next weeks is not 
just to look up Bible project videos, although that is possibly the best thing you'll find on YouTube, but also to take some time to read through in the Bible. Uh, maybe the whole of both books, if you're, if you're bold. There's nine chapters of names, so have fun with that. Or you can jump in at two Chronicles, which is what we're going to do, which is after David dies from Solomon through to the end of the Old Testament. But, but go through. We're not going to read every word in church. We haven't got enough weeks to do that. But at home, you can read it through. You can maybe read it through a few times and get a feel for what's going on and maybe start to get a sense of how this book is written in such a way that it's presenting a sort of a positive in order to motivate us. It's presenting uh, the kind of the good moments in the history of Israel so that we can be stirred to be people that hopefully can have some good moments in our history as well. Okay, so we're going to jump in at uh, 2 Chronicles, and we're going to look at chapters 1 to 6 briefly. And what we're going to see here is that the focus of the book is really on the temple, like the video showed us, that 1 Chronicles is kind of pointing to the, um, the messianic king, um, anticipating Jesus, the greater son of David, but then 2 Chronicles is focused on the temple. And, and you kind of think, you know, temple, that's just kind of dull, isn't it? We're not kind of people that do much with temples, are we? we uh, I went to a Hindu temple in Panama once, and that was one of the most depressing things I've ever experienced. It was kind of weird and sinister. But, but we don't tend to have much to do with temples. The temple in Jerusalem was destroyed in AD 70, and so for the past 2,000 years, followers of Jesus have not been going to temples. It's just not part of what we do. And so it's easy for us to think, well, a temple, a temple's kind of this ritualistic sort of place where people do these rituals and, and they go through these kind of things that they've got to do. And the God that is kind of hidden away somewhere and inaccessible. And if they just will do enough, you know, kind of rituals, then maybe they can twist the arm of whatever God is represented and then maybe they'll get a good harvest. And it all just seems kind of weird. But actually what I want us to see is that the God who is our God, the God who is the real God, is not like that. He's not off at a distance. He's not uh, kind of playing hard to get with us. He's not trying to convince us to, to go above and beyond anything that we've ever done before so that maybe we can twist his arm into doing something. We're going to discover yet again that the God of the Bible is incredibly relational. In fact, we're going to see four things in these six chapters, four things uh, that are true of God our God who wants to relate to us to kind of hopefully get us leaning forward, get us excited about the privilege of knowing him. So let's start then at 2 Chronicles chapter 1. We're not going to read uh, the whole thing, but we're going to just pull out a few verses from this first chapter. It begins verse 1, Solomon the son of David established himself in his kingdom and the Lord his God was with him and made him exceedingly great. And so then the next paragraph describes how Solomon went up to uh, this place where the Ark of the Covenant was, and there was an altar and a tent of meeting, and he did this massive sacrifice to God, a thousand burnt offerings, like way above and beyond what anyone would normally do because he was the king. But more importantly, because God had been at work in his father David's life. And so God had been making these incredible promises to David, and now Solomon is responding to God's kindness and goodness to David. And so he makes this huge sacrifice, and then God responds to Solomon. Verse 7, it says, In that night God appeared to Solomon and said to him, Ask what I shall give you. 
And so Solomon, in, we're told in Kings it was a dream. Here we're just told God appeared. Solomon saw God. Now I think whenever we have God visible, it's always God the Son because the Son always reveals the Father. The Father's never seen. So, so in a sense, Solomon sees Jesus before Jesus has become a human. He gets a, a vision and he gets to see in, in some way God. And he's, he's asked, okay, ask for something. Ask for something. And what does Solomon ask for? He says to God, verse 8, You have shown great and steadfast love to David my father and have made me king in his place. O Lord God, let your word to David my father be now fulfilled. For you have made me king over a people as numerous as the dust of the earth. Give me now wisdom and knowledge to go out and come in before this people. For who can govern this people of yours which is so great? So then God responds to Solomon. Because this was in your heart, and you have not asked for possessions, wealth, honor, or the life of those who hate you, and have not even asked for long life, but have asked for wisdom and knowledge for yourself that you may govern my people over whom I have made you king, wisdom and knowledge are granted to you. I will also give you riches, possessions, and honor, such as none of the kings had who were before you, and none after you shall have the like." And so in in terms of Solomon's experience, this is obviously a key moment. He sees God. God says, what do you want? And his response is a brilliant response. I've got to lead this people. I I need wisdom. I, I need you to give me the wisdom that I need to be able to do the job you're calling me to do. And God says, that's such a great request. I'm going to give you that. And I'm going to give you everything else that I kind of anticipated you might ask for you know obviously God knows the future but you know what I'm saying typically when someone becomes king okay Lord kill my enemies and make me rich I mean it's kind of obvious but God says I'm going to make you wealthy I'm going to bless you I'm going to give you so much because you've asked for wisdom now I said there's four things that I want us to see in these chapters Uh, four things relating to the fact that our God is not distant and cold and aloof and hard to get. He, He leans toward us and invites us to lean toward him. I want you to notice the back and forth nature of this relationship. God wants to interact. He wants to have a back and forth connection with his people. He wants a responsive relationship. And so Solomon knows what God has done for David, and so Solomon worships God, and God responds to the worship and comes to Solomon and says, what do you want? And Solomon responds to God and says, I want this, and God responds to the response, to the response, to the response, and says, okay, then you'll have this, and I'll give you this as well. And that's how it goes on. And I'm just wanting to point that out, not because this is unusual in chapter 1 of 2 Chronicles. This is actually the way it is all the way through the Bible. The problem is we have glasses on, whether we need them or not. We have these lenses through which we see God as we read the Bible and we assume that he's distant. We assume that he's not leaning in and he's not responsive to us. He knows the future anyway. Why should he be? But actually all through the Bible we see that God wants to have this kind of back and forth responsive relationship with his people. That's an incredible thing, isn't it? Think of all the gods that have been made up all over the world, all the different religions. How much of those religions is is taken up with trying to get the attention of their God, with trying to get their God to do something, trying to get their God to act, and he's not responsive and he's not doing anything. And yet the God of the Bible is leaning toward us. 
He cares. He's watching. He, he knows what's going on. And he knows whether we're responsive to him or not. And he wants to have that kind of a connection. Now, the second thing takes the next several chapters. And, and it, it begins in chapter 2 where Solomon prepares to build a temple. And we're not going to read it now. You can read it later. In chapter 3, he builds the temple. Okay, just a bit of follow through there. And then in chapter 4, he brings in the furnishings that David had prepared for the temple. And then chapter 5, he brings the Ark of the Covenant to the temple. So it's all about the temple. And this is where potentially our eyes can glaze over because we go, oh, there it is again, the temple. Not very interesting for us. But before we think about Solomon and that moment, just, just think about the temple and the idea throughout the whole of the Bible that God wants to dwell in the midst of his people. If you were to read through Genesis, you would find on page after page, God appeared, the Lord appeared, the Lord walks up to, the Lord walks with, the Lord arrives for tea. I mean, there's, there's this incredible amount of God dwelling in the midst of his people in the story of Genesis. As he calls Abraham and the the, the four generations there, we see the Lord was with them in a special way. Then you come into Exodus, and that family had become a nation, and, uh, and there they were, the Israelites in Egypt, and God brought them out of Egypt into the wilderness, and what did they have? They had a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night, God's presence in their midst. And then the tabernacle, this kind of special tent, worship tent was made and God's presence descended and was there in a special way. And for the the centuries leading up to this point, God's presence had been in a special way, somehow contained, not contained, but there within that tabernacle. And it's easy again to look at it and go, oh, it's all religious stuff. No, no, hang on a second. This is a God who is not just a local God who needs a house and an address. This is the God who created the entire cosmos, who created everything, and heaven is his throne, right? He doesn't need a little local, you know, kind of holiday home or anything like that. He doesn't need a place to stay. He's got the entirety of all space to stay, and yet he keeps moving towards his people. He keeps placing his presence in some sort of special way within the people. I mean, if you think about the, uh, the, the people of Israel in the wilderness, they've got this tent in the, in the Holy of Holies, this special room at the back of this tent. That's where God's presence was. And the entire camp was arranged around it. He wasn't off at some safe distance a few miles away. He was right there in the midst of the people. Because that's the kind of God that he is. And so for the Israelites, the idea of the temple was not just some kind of we want a temple to match the Greeks or to match the Egyptians or it wasn't some kind of competitive thing. In their mind, there was no equivalent. There was no one else in the world that had a temple where the true God of everything chose to dwell, but he chose to dwell with them. Now, that's the best they had. What have we got? We come forward a few hundred years and and we remember maybe the the first Christmas, right? And there's this young couple and they're kind of wide-eyed like you are when you're carrying a first child. I would imagine extra if it's the Messiah. And Mary and Joseph walk into the temple courts carrying this baby, just a few pounds of flesh, and this temple that represents the presence of God amongst his people actually has the presence of God amongst his people because they're holding him. 
And so for us, we've got hindsight to go, wow, God isn't kidding when he says he wants to dwell amongst his people. It's not just a temple and some kind of special presence. He came and became one of us. Christmas tells us that. He came to become one of us in the person of Jesus so that he truly could pitch his tent among us, so that he could truly dwell in our midst. It's an amazing privilege that we have to have a God who wants to be with us. That's incredibly relational, isn't it, if you think about it? He wants to be with his people. If you think about human friendships, the four things that we're going to see here that are true of God are also true of healthy human friendships. For, for the first one that we saw in chapter one, a healthy human friendship has a back and forth sense to it. Maybe you've, you've had that situation where you've got a friend and they seem like a great friend and after a while you start to realize, I always phone, I always write, I always initiate, I do everything, there's nothing coming the other way. And you kind of go, oh, it's not quite so special as I thought it might be. Do you know what I mean? Well, you've got a friendship and it's kind of one way. A true friendship has two way, doesn't it? A true friendship has that connection back and forth. That's what God wants with us. In a true friendship, you want to be with that person. In a true friendship, you don't always have an excuse that, you know, well, I'd love to meet, but, you know, constantly, you know, got a headache, wash my hair, whatever. In a true friendship, you want to be with that person. God wants to be with his people. He wants to be in the midst of them. And so you come to the end of chapter five and you kind of get the special uh, moment. I suppose we could jump in at verse 13 of chapter five. It was the duty of the trumpeters and singers to make themselves heard in unison in praise and thanksgiving to the Lord. And when the song was raised with trumpets and cymbals and other musical instruments, in praise to the Lord, here are the words that they sang, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Big recurring theme of the Old Testament. He is good and his steadfast love endures forever. When those words were heard, the house, the house of the Lord was filled with a cloud so that the priest could not stand to minister because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the house of God. That must have been so cool, don't you think? All these preparations and all the building and the, the furniture brought in and the priests are all there, and not just one division, all 24 divisions, like they're all on duty. And then as the, the, the words of worship go up, suddenly, boom, the presence of the Lord is there, and they can't even function. They can't even be in there because it's like, wow. That's what it was like for them. And when I get to heaven, I want to watch the DVD and see what that was like because that must have been spectacular. If you were there, you must have thought, that's it. My whole life changed on that day when the presence of God came and filled the temple. And yet we've got something better than that because God has come and become one of us in the person of Jesus. Uh, when you get to the New Testament and it talks about the temple, not the temple in Jerusalem, what does it talk about for Christians? It says that we are the temple. We, we don't have to travel to find some building on a you know, kind of flight to Jerusalem. Well, you fly to Tel Aviv and then drive up to Jerusalem. It's all hot and sweaty and all the tourists and you get there. No, we don't do that. The New Testament says we are the temple. God dwells in a special way amongst his people. The New Testament says on two occasions that you individually, if you are a believer in Jesus, you are a temple of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of God dwells inside of us if we are his 
So we don't need the building. We don't need the tourist experience. And yet, we, we take this for granted. How often do you stop and think, I'm a temple. <laughs> the Spirit of God is living in me. If you're a follower of Jesus, if you've trusted him, the Spirit of God is in you. Which means that at any moment, you can go straight into God's presence because he's already there. Any moment you can lift up your voice, whether it's audible or just that inaudible kind of quiet because it's sometimes awkward to sing. You, know, you can just worship him at any moment because you're in the presence of God because he chose to dwell in your heart if you're a follower of Jesus. That's an amazing truth. In Ephesians, it talks about uh, the fact that he's kind of set up home within us, like the moving truck has beat, beat, beat backwards and the, the, you know, the, the ramp's gone down and the furniture's come in because God has come to stay in those who are his. That's an incredible thing that we have as Christians. We have a God who's leaning forward, wanting a responsive relationship with us. And we have a God who wants to dwell with us so much that his son became one of us and then the Father and the Son sent the Spirit to dwell within us. That's incredible. There's a third thing, chapter 6. Uh, so Solomon is uh, kind of going to make a speech and a prayer. And let's just look at his speech. Um, verse 3, uh, the king turned around and blessed all the assembly of Israel. All the assembly of Israel stood. So there's this massive crowd gathered for this special moment. And he said, blessed be the God of Israel who with his hand has fulfilled what he promised with his mouth to David my father. Saying, since the day that I brought my people out of the land of Egypt, I chose no city out of all the tribes of Israel in which to build a house that my name might be there. And I chose no man as prince over my people Israel, but I have chosen Jerusalem that my name may be there. And I have chosen David to be over my people Israel. Look at verse 7. This is one of my favorite verses in the Old Testament. Now it was in the heart of David my father to build a house for the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. But the Lord said to David my father, whereas it was in your heart to build a house for my name, you did well that it was in your heart. Nevertheless, it is not you who shall build the house, but your son who shall be born to you shall build the house for my name. Now why is that? One of my favorite verses, or three verses in the Old Testament. Because notice what it says. God is, God is looking at David, generation before Solomon, and he's saying, David, I know what's in your heart. I know that you want to do this for me. And it's good that you want to do this for me. He gives him credit for what he wishes he could do. If he could do, he would do it. Isn't that what happens in a healthy relationship too? When you've got a healthy relationship with someone, you, you, you know their heart for you. And more than that, you, you give credit to, to them for what's in their heart, for the, the I, I would if I could kind of things. The only example I can, I can think of is, uh, many of you know, Melanie has recurring migraines. And, and I would love to take a migraine for her, just to give her a break when she's, when she's experiencing it. I wish there's some way that we could kind of transfer and I go, let me have extreme pain and lie in a dark room for several hours so that you can do what you want to do. It's in my heart to do that for you. And she knows that. And because she knows it, it's like she, she appreciates it, even though I can't do it, sadly. Do you see what I mean? The, I, I would if I could, and it means something to her. And in a healthy relationship, 
There's a lot of that, isn't there? Between friends, between spouses, there's a lot of that, oh, you're hurting, and if I could take this from you, I would do it. And here's God saying to David, I know that you want to build me a temple. You're not going to. I'm not going to let you. But thanks for wanting it. And I appreciate that because in my life there have been several times, maybe not as many as there should have been, but times where I've wanted to do something for God and it hasn't happened. And I wonder if maybe we need that encouragement as a church to, to dream bigger. To go, you know what, Lord, I'd love this to happen. To pray big prayers, to want big things, to, to dream big dreams. Whether it's global, ending global uh, hunger or ending human trafficking or whether it's local. Lord, there's over 40,000 people in this town that don't know you and I want every one of them to know you. Or whether it's in your family or in the church or, or something. that the, the wants count. Because God is the kind of God who doesn't sit off at a distance and simply notice the fruits of our labors. He's close enough to know what's going on in our hearts. And he appreciates it. The prayers that you've prayed, the things that you've dreamed of, the, the, the wants that you've wished for but not even prayed for, God knows that. And if those are things that are pleasing to him, then he's pleased even though you were not able to do it. I would love to be a worship leader. Can't sing to save my life, but maybe God will give me credit for the desire. Do you see what I mean? It's, it's an amazingly intimate thing for God to say to David, it was good that it was in your heart. Because it means he knows what's going on inside of him. In a healthy friendship, there's the back and forth. There's the, I want to be with you. And there's the, I know what's in your heart and I so appreciate it. And we're reading in these chapters from the middle of the Old Testament, at least the way it's organized for us. And we're going, wow, look, this is the kind of God that we have. And then we get to the prayer. And the prayer is the, the, the fourth thing that we're going to see here. Just to, to wrap it up, we haven't got time to go into detail, but Solomon is representing the people. He builds this kind of big platform and stands with all the nation there, and then he gets down on his knees, and he prays this prayer to God. And he tells God that there is no one like you, verse 14 of chapter 6, in heaven or on earth, keeping covenant and showing steadfast love to your servants who walk before you with all their heart, your God who's made promises and kept them and so on. You come down to uh, verse 18, he suddenly has this kind of awareness of what's happened. He's built this great big temple and suddenly he realized, well, he knew it, but, but it's just overwhelmed. Verse 18, will God indeed dwell with man on the earth? Come on, this is preposterous. This is, this is crazy. Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this puny little house that I have built. Probably one of the wonders of the ancient world, but compared to God, it was nothing. And Solomon suddenly realizes or suddenly just feels overwhelmed by the fact that God is so much bigger than this incredible building. And yet, God is the highest God. God is the highest being. He's, he's seated on the throne of the cosmos. And yet, verse 19 he says, have regard to the prayer of your servant and to his plea. O Lord, my God, listening to the cry and to the prayer that your servant prays before you. Isn't that an amazing thought? The God of the cosmos leans in and listens when we talk to him. Little people like King Solomon and little people like you and me. When we say, oh God, 
I, when we pray, he listens. He cares. He wants to hear our hearts. He wants to hear our voices. And so David, go, sorry, Solomon goes through this uh, and he says basically, Lord, I know that you're not restricted to being in this little box, which is the, the great temple I've built. I know that you're on the throne of the cosmos, but, but could you keep your eyes open and your ears open so that any prayer that's prayed towards this temple, which represents your presence, that you hear that and you respond to it. And then he goes through seven examples, seven kind of situations that might happen. Uh, you'll see them, verse 22. If a man sins against his neighbor and so on. Verse 24, if your people Israel are defeated before the enemy because they have sinned against you. Verse 26, when heaven is shut up and there is no rain because they have sinned against you. Verse 28, if there is famine in the land or pestilence or blight or mildew or locust or caterpillar, which apparently is a bad thing. If their enemies besiege them in the land at their gates, whatever plague, whatever sickness, whatever prayer, whatever plea is made by any man or by all your people Israel, each knowing his own affliction and his own sorrow and stretching out his hand toward this house, this house then hear from heaven your dwelling place and forgive. Notice that in most of these, certainly the first four, and there's another one as well. Five out of seven of these petitions that he makes involve forgiveness. One of the ones that doesn't, verse 32, when a foreigner comes from a far country, hear that person too. That's good. That includes us. We're not Jews. We're not part of Israel. But you see, what Solomon is saying is, Lord, okay, my prayer is that whenever anyone cries out to you because of whatever it is they're going through, hear, and verse 21 at the end, when you hear, forgive. And that's the reality, isn't it? That we're talking about the God of the cosmos, the God of the universe, the God over everything, who is perfect, who is holy, who is great, who if we caught a glimpse, we would be flat on our faces. And it's all very well saying, you know, he wants a reciprocal back and forth relationship. It's all very well saying that he wants to dwell in our midst. And it's all very well saying that he knows what's going on in our hearts and he appreciates when we want to do stuff for him. But the reality is that we fail. We sin and we mess up and we do stupid things and we do crazy things and, and, and we, we do, don't do the right thing. And we, we know that, don't we? And so five out of seven of the things that Solomon prays about are things to do with sin. And what's he saying? He's saying, God, when we pray, hear and forgive. This God is not just wanting a back and forth relationship. Not just wanting to dwell in our midst. Not just wanting to to hear our hearts and to give us credit for the things we would if we could. He's also a God who's ready to hear and forgive. A God who wants to restore us when we sin. And that's a good news for us, isn't it? Because we mess up every week. And yet the God of the Bible, the God of of Christianity, the God that we trust in, is a God who's leaning towards us, not hoping or... uh, dreaming of perfection in us but knowing that we're going to mess up but he leans forward anyway and we know that's true because ultimately the greater son of David came Jesus and he came on a mission what was the mission it was to go to the cross and to die why because God's a God who's realistic about our sin and he knows that the problem between you and God and me and God is our sin and so he 
has taken care of it. And so uh, 2 Chronicles is kind of setting us up for, for this God who wants a relationship with us. And it finishes with a dot, dot, dot. It's a, a story in hope of a conclusion. And we go across the page into the New Testament and we come to Jesus and we see Jesus on the cross and we discover, yes, all of these things are true. He wants a relationship. He knows our hearts. He wants to be in our midst and he's ready to restore us. And so for the next few weeks, as we go through two Chronicles, it's my prayer and it's, it's my hope that we as a church can say, you know what? We may be sinners. We may be strugglers. We may mess up far more regularly than we even dare to admit. But if that God wants a relationship with us, then we're leaning in. We're in, Lord. We want it too. And so whether it's God's initiative or ours, whether it's something he does or something that we do that sparks something, we just want God to ignite a revival in our hearts. Maybe corporately, maybe nationally, maybe just personally. But our dream is for there to be something more real, something so real that when we look back on it, we'll say, you know what? The end of 2018 is like a mark in the calendar for me because that's where God did something in our church.